questions and now Bible nerd par extraordinaire Emily Swan to complete our Monsters of the Bible series. Yeah. Give it up for Emily. Good morning, everybody. I um, finally caught this terrible cold that everybody has. So pardon me if I'm a little bit sniffly. I actually cut down the sermon a little bit this morning so I wouldn't have to speak as long. I'm sure you guys are all just heartbroken about that. As Ken said, we're going to be closing out this sermon series that we've been doing on the monsters of the Bible. And today we're going to close by looking at the fiery cherubim who appear at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel. So in approaching Ezekiel's writing, I think it's really helpful to understand his frame of mind in the years that he wrote and prophesied. Because Ezekiel was a deeply traumatized man. You know, when he was just 30 years old, probably that was his first year of working as a priest in the big temple in Jerusalem. Babylon attacked his country. And the foreign policy of Babylon was to conquer lands and then exile its upper class leaders. And so Ezekiel, as a trained priest, was probably one of the first to go. And then roughly 10 years after he's banished from his home country, he hears that the Babylonians have burned down his hometown, Jerusalem, destroyed the temple where he worked, and they did this because the people refused to pay tribute. So I just want us to imagine, sometimes that can just sound sort of distant and like some far off war, but imagine how it would feel if you had been forcibly taken from your own home and maybe exiled up to Canada or something, <laughs> to Saskatchewan. And then 10 years later, after having been forcibly taken from your home, you hear that your hometown has been burned to the ground, maybe the place that you drive up and go to work to every day has been completely destroyed along with many of your coworkers and your neighbors and your loved ones, right? So you'd be devastated and your hope of ever returning to your normal life would disappear. And this is Ezekiel. Now, some scholars find it likely that Ezekiel had some pretty severe mental health issues, at least PTSD, that was a result of his many traumas. And so as a result, some of his behaviors and visions were slightly more unconventional than other prophets. And prophets were known to do some idiosyncratic things when they were trying to make a point that they, were felt, that they felt called to make. But Ezekiel would do things like this. He would take a giant clay brick, and on it he drew the city of Jerusalem with all of its intricacies, its roads and its little businesses. And then he created little ramps that would go up its walls, and he created battering rams that would go outside of its gates, and then he created fake enemy camps that he would place around it. And he would enact and reenact the destruction of his hometown. Right? So it was like he was reliving a trauma that he might not have even witnessed that firsthand. So in chapter 4, he writes that God told him to lie down on his left side, facing this miniature city that he's built with these battlegrounds, and then take an iron pan and place it between him and that miniature city, and then pretend that he's bearing all of the sins of his people as he imagines that he's besieging them. And he does this not once and not twice, but he does this for 390 days straight, eating nothing but grains and beans and drinking water and spending most of that time with his hands bound with a rope. And so he does this for 390 days and then he turned over onto his right side and he lied down and for 40 days and did the same thing. And then it gets even a little bit weirder from there. 
at the end of this time, this year and a half, he's grown out his hair and his beard. He shaves all of that off and he takes a portion of that hair that he shaved off and he puts it onto that clay city of Jerusalem and he lights it on fire. And then he does some other weird things with the sword. There are a few commentators that even speculate that Ezekiel may have experienced something called hysterical paralysis, which is a very rare response to trauma that can cause you to lose some of your motor functions. So when I read that, I actually went to Rachel because my wife's a therapist and I was like, have you heard of this? She said, oh yeah, in the DSM, there's, there's like hysterical blindness. Is that right? Like you, it's known that on rare occasions, you can actually lose some of your functions for a time. But even if Ezekiel didn't have hysterical paralysis, I think it makes a lot of sense to read this chapter as a man who is like reliving the siege of his hometown while binding his hands to signify like just how helpless he felt about it. And then he places all the blame on himself, which is also very common for victims of violence. Now, I don't say these things to discount him in any way as a prophet, but just to better understand him. And I think his PTSD and his trauma is really emblematic of the state of his people. Right? They were in a place of utter devastation. And it's from this place of experiencing ruin and desolation that Ezekiel's imaginings of God spring forth. So before we get to our, our monsters, the cherubim this morning, I want to talk briefly about collective imagination. So in every community or group of people, there exists a collective imagination. This is a set of symbols, of customs, of memories that are common and that have a specific meaning um, that are common to all of the people who are part of the group. So, for example, even if you've never seen any of the Star Wars movies, every American knows who Darth Vader is, right? Because that piece of culture has entered into our collective imagination. It's a character that we can throw into any conversation or writing and people just know what you're talking about. But our collective imagination has limits. And sometimes it takes prophetic voices to like imagine the state um, that what they're seeing is different than what other people see. So I'm gonna give an example. A couple years back, there was a stage play about the Harry Potter world called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And Noma Dumezwini, who's a black woman, was cast as Hermione. If you don't know, Hermione was one of the main characters in the Harry Potter world. And when she was cast, there were some people in the corners of the internet saying, but Hermione's not black, Hermione's white. And then the author came out and said, I never said Hermione was white. There's not a single place in any of those seven books that says she is or even infers it. Right, so what happened there? Racism hindered collective imagination. And we could only imagine whiteness for this hero character. Now, I'm sure there were people who imagined Hermione as not white, but what that did was it highlighted the privilege that white people have in experiencing our skin color to be like the default setting unless stated otherwise, right? So there are things that can hinder our collective imagination. If we look back at Ezekiel, we know his frame of mind. And while he came from a really rich spiritual tradition of God's stories, there was not a single person from his tradition up until his writings who had ever written about seeing God directly in all of God's glory and then described what that looked like. Right? So that was not part of their collective imagination. Moses had asked God to see God's glory, but God told him, go hide in the crevice of a rock and wait until I walk by. And then Moses could go out and like, catch the afterglow of God's glory. The psalmist sometimes imagined God's throne, but that throne was hidden in clouds and darkness. 
But I think Ezekiel's condition was such that he didn't just want to see God's glory. It was almost like he needed to see it. He needed to see the fullness of God and all of God's like terrifying glory because he needed to understand that there was a God whose glory was more awesome and more powerful and more formidable than anything the forces of Babylon could possibly conjure. And I think it was out of that place of need that his mind let him take the collective imagination of his people beyond what they had previously known. Ezekiel's saying we need to understand God as even more glorious than we've understood. So we're going to read through quite a lot here of Ezekiel chapter 1, and I want us to imagine with him what this looks like, what he's seeing. And the beginning of this starts with four cherubim, right? The four cherubim that we're going to be talking about are our monsters. And then that'll be followed by the glory of God. And I want to note that when most people think of cherubim, what comes to mind? Winged babies? Yeah, like little chubby winged babies. That's what I usually think of. But that's, that's actually a Roman innovation. Um, it comes from like little works of art that depicted chubby little babies. Like, I think they're called puddo. But these chubby little angels couldn't be further from the way that cherubim are described in Scripture. So let's listen to this. Ezekiel 1, starting with verse 4. Ezekiel says, And I saw, and look, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud and fire flashing and radiance all around it, and from within it, like the appearance of amber from within a fire. Right, so he's sharing, he's starting out here by sharing his imaginings of God being surrounded by storms and lightning. That was common in his tradition. Like the psalmist had described that, so had Moses. But here, Ezekiel, he adds fire and brightness. And from within the fire, the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their look, the likeness of a human being they had. These are four cherubim. And each cherub had four faces and four wings to each of them. And their legs were straight legs, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they glittered like the look of burnished bronze. And there were human hands beneath their wings on their four sides. So I'm trying to picture this. He says they look like a human, but they really don't. They've got four faces and wings, like human legs and hooves, but then he talks about these hands and underneath the wings. And all I could try and figure out was like, are the hands like on arms? Or are they just like hands under the wings? Because that's like super creepy either way. (laughs) And the faces and the wings of the four of them were joined together. And their wings didn't turn as they went, each went straight ahead. And the likeness of their faces, the faces of a human, the face of a lion on the right, the face of a bull to the left, and the face of an eagle on the back, their faces and their wings were separated from above, two were joined for each, and two covered their bodies. And this is where Ezekiel gets confusing, and nobody knows what he's talking about. About 2,500 years of scholars have tried to imagine exactly what he was seeing here with no real consensus. But it is thought that these four faces that he's describing, the lion and the bull and the eagle, were creatures who were believed to guard the thrones of the Babylonian gods. Right? So he's bringing in the imagery from his captor's culture and he's using it subversively here. He says, in the likeness of the creatures, their look was like burning coals of fire, like the look of torches going back and forth among the creatures. And the fire had a radiance and from the fire lightning came forth. And the creatures were racing back and forth like the look of sparks. Right, so we've got movement and we've got light. 
And then Ezekiel goes on to describe how each one of these four creatures, these sort of monstrous things, have a wheel under them. And then he says that the wheel has a wheel within a wheel, and that the rims of the wheels have eyes all over them. And the wheels don't seem to be attached to the cherubim per se, but they kind of hover under them, almost like a hoverboard, and they move along with the creatures. And it says it's attached by a spirit, whatever that means. And then my question is, is it like a chariot wheel? Like, is it flat? Is it like a wheel turned on its side that's spinning? Or is it more like a ball that, you know, like BB-8 in Star Wars, you know, that's rolling around on a ball? We don't know. But we've got these fiery, four-sided animal creatures with hooves and wings, with human hands under them, flying around with eyeball-filled wheels. And then there was a likeness over the head of the beasts, a platform like the appearance of the fearsome ice stretched over their heads above. Now, I've never thought about God being like on a platform of fearsome ice, right? Almost like diamond. And beneath the platform, their wings stood straight and toward each other. Each had two covering them and two covering their body. And I heard the sound of their wings, right? So this is multi-sensory here. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many waters, like the sound of Shaddai as they went, like the sound of an uproar, like the sound of an armed camp, right? So these cherub wings are making a loud rustling noise. And that phrase, like the sound of many waters is actually used several places in the scripture. And it evokes the sound of the primordial deep, right, of that chaos before all things. And we talked a little bit about that when we talked about Leviathan a couple of weeks ago. And when they stood still, their their wings grew slack. And there was a sound above the platform that was over their heads. And when they stood still, their wings slackened. And above the platform that was over their heads, it was like the look of sapphire stone. Sapphire is blue. It's like a deep blue. And in the sapphire, the likeness of a throne, and above the likeness of the throne, like a human form above it. So this is God presented in a human form, and I think probably more human-looking than those cherub. He says, I saw the appearance of amber, like the look of fire within it all around, from the look of his loins above and the look of his loins below. I saw like the look of fire with radiance all around, like the look of a rainbow that is in the clouds of the day, in the rain. This was the look of radiance all around, the look of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And I saw and I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. So right here, never before in all the biblical literature had God's glory been given such a visual realization, right? And he's got, it's almost like rainbow technicolor. It's almost like, uh, is it My Little Pony or Rainbow, Rainbow Bright, right? That's what I think of. And we can see that Ezekiel's struggling to put it into words, right? God met this traumatized man in this dramatic, mystical experience. And he gave Ezekiel this glimpse of his majesty and the mystery and the holiness of God that were far more magnificent than the armies that had destroyed his life and the lives of everyone that he had loved. And if Ezekiel was to have any hope at all, it would need to be in such a God. I was talking with Ken about this sermon this week, and he reminded me that there's a famous spiritual called Ezekiel Saw the Wheel. You know, black spirituals employ a lot of Old Testament imagery because the trauma of Egyptian slavery and of the Babylonian exile resonate deeply with the black American experience. And the chorus goes like this. I was like 
kind of going through this in the, in the bathroom getting ready this morning. Rachel's like, what are you singing? Ezekiel saw the wheel way in the middle of the air. The big wheel run by faith, the little wheel run by the grace of God. A wheel in a wheel way in the middle of the air. It's got a little bit, doesn't it? I think sometimes we need God to be scary on our behalf. Right? When we face the giants that are around us, this understanding of a God who is really big and powerful but is comforting to those who are on the underside of power while being threatening to those who are on the upside of power is really helpful. And it's fairly well established that people who experience trauma are statistically more likely to have mystical experiences. Isn't that interesting? People who experience trauma are statistically more likely to have mystical experiences. There are three things that make it more likely that you'll have some kind of mystical encounter with God. One is regular meditation. One is communal spiritual experiences, so maybe a little like these, those two or three minutes of silence or guided meditation that we do. And the third is trauma. And it's a good question, like why trauma? I was talking with Ken again about this and a little with Rachel. It's, I think when people experience significant trauma, their brains function differently. And the way that their brains function may well overlap with how our brains function when we're having a mystical experience. It can kind of take you out of the present. It can give you a little bit of a different sense of self. You don't have to have had trauma to have a mystical experience. Right? I felt like I had mystical prayer experiences for much of my life without having had significant trauma because up until about five years ago, when I was outed, I wouldn't have said I had very significant trauma, but I still had mystical experiences. Right, so those don't necessarily go hand in hand. But I do think that there's something beautiful in knowing that God statistically shows up more often in spiritual experiences for people who have been hurt the most. And perhaps that this is why Ezekiel had such a revelation of God that cracked open the imagination of his people for who God is. You know, we're coming this week to that day of the year when we celebrate God becoming a human child and this picture of God becoming a vulnerable baby stands in stark contrast to this God that Ezekiel sees with all of the, the glory and the rainbows. But this is part of the mystery of our faith, that God is both all-powerful and glorious, and God approaches humanity vulnerably, laying down their power. And so at Christmas, we comfortably acknowledge these paradoxes, right? that God is both human and divine, that God is one and yet God is three, that God is separate from creation and yet also became part of creation and yet all of creation is held together in them, and that God is an electrifying rainbow surrounded by monstrous creatures and God is a tiny baby suckling at the breast of a human. And the saints through the ages tell us that seeking understanding of these mysteries is part of our path to wisdom that we need to know God and recognize that God manifests differently in different situations, and that sometimes we need God in all of God's glory in order to hold on to hope. And sometimes we need God to approach us as gently as one can be approached, right? That God is both of these things. And so to close out today, we're going to, we usually take two or three minutes of silence or guided meditation. And all I'd like to do is just invite us to... Um, just imagine the juxtaposition of both of these things. Maybe thinking about Ezekiel's vision of God with these terrifying cherubim, um, as well as the idea of God as a baby. 
and let your mind take you wherever it will. People and baby make noises. Let's just breathe here together. Jesus, we thank you for your presence as God with us. And we know this week is often um, filled with joyful times with loved ones. It's often an exhausting week. For some of us, it can be a traumatic time. It can be a time of grief. And we ask that we could experience your presence in ways that maybe were outside of our imagination before that our eyes would be open to seeing you in people and in places and in situations that we might not have before. I ask that where we feel weak and vulnerable um, and maybe vulnerable within our family systems, that you would help us to experience just your awesome power standing beside us, having our back. And in those places where we're feeling um, maybe a little bit anxious, and we're feeling vulnerable that we would remember that you also became a child and a human and that you also have experienced those same things and that we would just have a sense of your presence with us as we go through this week. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Amen.